And these studies often look at the potential impacts of policy interventions on social groups. So usually these are economic effects that are looked at. But we want to understand other impacts like social, economic and political effects. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week's episode is part of our Just Transitions Initiative, a partnership with the CSIS Energy Program and the Climate Investment Funds. We will be discussing some social and economic issues related to creating a just transition, in particular the gendered impacts. We're fortunate to have two experts with us today, Adrian Cruz with the International Labor Organization based in Geneva, and May the Zayong with the Stockholm Environment Institute. Speaking with Sarah Ladislaw, they look at the challenges and needs women face and why it is so key to consider the gendered impacts of transition policies. Let's turn it over to Sarah now. Hello, and welcome to Energy 360. In recent years, there's been a growing focus on just transitions and climate policy. For those of you who are not familiar with the term just transitions, it's the idea that as we transition away from emissions-intensive fuels and towards a more sustainable environment and economy, policymakers will have to think about how to help affected workers in regions to make the transition themselves. At a very basic level, it's about the recognition that workers in communities should be protected. But the term just transition also implies that those communities should have a voice in the plans and policies about their future, and that they should see benefits and opportunities, not just costs. Too often, we tend to think about this transition in terms of planning for jobs that will be lost, for example, in coal mining. But the social and economic issues at stake are much larger, and we tend to underemphasize how climate impacts and climate policy will disproportionately affect certain communities or social groups based on gender, ethnicity, race, age, or class. Today, we'll be focusing on the gender dimensions of just transitions with two experts who've given this a great deal of thought. Adrian Cruz is a senior gender specialist at the International Labor Organization, and Mei Vizayong is a research fellow in the Stockholm Environment Institute. Thank you both for being here today. Adrian, could we start with you and get this conversation kicked off? So many of our listeners associate the concept of just transition with jobs, but we're here today to talk about the relevance and importance of gender issues in that transition. What unique challenges and needs do the women face in this process of socioeconomic change, and why is it important to consider the gender impacts of transition policies, not just climate change itself? Well, that's a great question, and it really goes to the heart of what we're trying to do. During the 1970s, the approach to women in development was called that, Women in Development, W-I-D, WID. And it was very much about how do we, you know, bring women's capacities up so that they can contribute to development processes, but knowing that these processes were male-dominated, they still are, and that we need to somehow change something about women so that they're participating. And women's Productive contributions were made visible with this approach, but their reproductive role was very much downplayed or ignored, and imbalanced power relationships were ignored. So now we're using a gender and development approach, or GAD, GAD, and this approach challenges the socially constructed stereotypes about gender roles and responsibilities and duties. And we're focusing on the imbalance of power rather than trying to see women as a problem that somehow needs to be corrected. So it's really about 
addressing the inequalities and the imbalance in power relationships and decision making. So in any crisis, there are these types of rigid stereotypes about roles, responsibilities, duties that both women and men have get thrown on their heads. And a good example is during the tsunami that we saw in Asia some years ago. Many women died. As a matter of fact, the World Economic Forum says that women and kids are about 14 times more likely to die in such natural disasters. So, so many women died that fathers took on care roles and household work that they had never t taken on before. So, a cr such a crisis actually represents an opportunity to challenge these barriers to gender equality from societal level within families all the way up to structural barriers and organizational processes and mechanisms at the highest level. Thanks, Adrian. That's a really interesting perspective, both on the history of gender issues in development context, but also the opportunity of crisis to be able to remedy or address some of those power imbalances. I wonder, May, from your experiences, how does taking gender issues into consideration in the just transition and climate policy context, how do you frame that issue in your own work? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think Adrian framed it perfectly, saying that fathers were taking on roles of care work post-tsunami. And uh, that's what we've been trying to do at SEI by trying to uncover some of the unique challenges faced by members of different social groups. So gender issues and a just transition, we're looking at the experience by members of different social groups, regardless of their race, age, class, or ethnicity, those factors also affect their experience. And we can't say that there's a blanket experience that sums up the multiple experiences of all these different social groups. So the work that we've been doing at SEI is looking at different strands of literature to understand cases of just transition. So also it's very difficult to sum up what a just transition is. So we've looked at cases of mind closure. We've looked at technological improvements like interventions for clean cook stoves to improve indoor air quality. We've looked at the implementation of renewable energy projects in different countries and how it has affected the lives of men and women and different members of different social groups. In the policy realm, I think that distributional impacts are often studied, and these studies often look at the potential impacts of policy interventions on social groups. So usually these are economic effects that are looked at, but we want to understand other impacts like social, economic, and political effects. So some of what we've been finding are long-term psychological effects that are related with drastic socioeconomic changes from mind closure, such as those experienced in Britain in the 1970s, as well as increased burdens placed on women by improved cookstove interventions and the burden that is placed on their care work. So we're looking at different cases like these to paint a bigger picture of what kind of policy interventions could work. Again, there is no broad policy recommendation that we could make, but by understanding different examples of people's experiences, we can have more effective policy interventions. 
Thanks, May. I want to get back into some of those case studies and examples that you've dug into uh, in a minute. But Adrian, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing at the ILO to mainstream gender policies and how it applies to the just transitions. Um, it sounds like you you feel as though gender issues have, have tended to be downplayed in a whole range of development issues. I would assume that would be the case in just transitions as well. But maybe if you could talk to us a little bit about how the ILO is working on addressing some of those issues. Well, we use what we call a gender responsive or gender transformative analysis. So whenever any policy or measure, not just for transitioning to a recovery after a crisis, but any policy measure initiative, anything you do, if it does not explicitly, intentionally, and consistently use this gender responsive approach, then you are just going to reinforce existing unequal power relations between women and men. And you may even exacerbate women's lower status and marginalization. So we never say gender neutral because these are not gender neutral. They're actually quite negative and long-term effects when we are not explicitly, intentionally, and consistently using a gender responsive approach. So inclusive policies and targeted measures are what we're aiming for. And we use the concept of intersectionality to also recognize that women are not a homogenous group and there are other layers or factors that can also result in discrimination towards a person, for example, for indigenous and tribal peoples, persons with HIV, people with disabilities, a migrant, etc. So we want to also take into account these multiple layers of vulnerability to discrimination. So policy choices and even these measures, initiatives, whatever you're doing, must be based on an assessment that addresses within the world of work, we're looking at four factors. First of all, we're looking at the division of both paid and unpaid work. So who is engaged in paid work? Who is engaged in unpaid care work within a population? The second thing we look at is who has access to and control over productive resources such as capital, land, information, data, education. The third thing we look at is practical needs, everyday needs that are tied to, you know, practical survival every day. What does a woman have to do every day? What is expected of her? Uh, Is she expected to look for the water and grow food for the consumption within the family? Is this part of her practical survival role? And what are the strategic interests of women within this group? So do women have representation? Do they have equal access to decision-making? And do they have equal opportunities? Do they have access to and control these productive resources? And the fourth and final approach within this analysis is to look at the opportunities and challenges for promoting gender equality within our constituent organizations. We're a tripartite organization. That means uh, we have government member states 
and then workers' organizations and employers' organizations. So we're looking at country level to see how we can help these constituents address gender equality within their own structures and their own decision-making processes and policies, and as well, what they're doing to promote gender equality and what are the barriers or challenges to doing this, and ILO seeks to, to support them in that. Can I follow up, if you don't mind? Please, May. How do you carry out these analyses? I had the same question, May. <laughs> well, we have in our, for example, we have a gender equality and non-discrimination marker, which is aligned with the United Nations country framework marker. And so every development cooperation project or program, every country outcome, every global product, everything that we do, the initiator must rank this initiative using the marker from one to three. So one would be limited contribution to gender equality and non-discrimination. And we have a very specific set of criteria for that. Number two would be significant contribution. So this gender transformative analysis has been carried out. There are targeted interventions to promote the constituents' mainstreaming of gender or advocacy support for sex-desegregated data, et cetera, et cetera. And number three is really this initiative is a principal contribution or its principal aim is specifically for gender equality. So this marker, we can disaggregate the marker and see how we're doing in different countries, how we're doing in different regions, how we're doing on different themes. Adrian, I want to come back to you in a minute to talk about, first off, that just seems like an enormous amount of forethought that goes into this. And and I would just want to point out for our listeners and many of whom have listened to some of our other Just Transition podcasts or, or read some of our work, there's just an enormous amount of pre-planning and pre-thinking that goes into thinking about doing a Just Transition well, and putting a finer point on it, the idea of adding this gender dimension or a gender responsive analysis for policies, it does add to that complexity, but it seems like really important work to do as well, particularly because Just Transitions isn't just about creating additional jobs, it's about making communities uh, more resilient for the future as well. So, Eugene, I want to come back in a minute and talk about some of the examples of those gender-aware policies that you talked about. But May, you know, in your work, particularly in some of the case studies that you've gone through, you know, maybe uh, your research in Indonesia, can you give us a sense of how some of the local dynamics have affected the transition policies? I think for many people, the idea that environmental policies or policies that are meant to deal with issues like climate change, that they, they can have negative repercussions or worsen, you know, gender inequalities in an area is something that would be really helpful to have additional sort of, you know, context around. Yeah, I think um, Indonesia is a really interesting case because I wouldn't say that it is undergoing an energy transition per se. It is still a very fossil fuel dominant country in their energy portfolio. It's still a huge exporter to many ASEAN countries, actually, that are very reliant on Indonesia's cheap coal. That being said, we do look at different policies that are low carbon oriented or promoting renewables. So 
energy transition policy is quite broad and it can encompass a lot of different things from environmental policies to energy policy. So one example that I'll highlight is uh, biofuel policies. So Indonesia is one of the largest producers of oil palm in the world. And now there's a drive for sustainable oil palm because of consumer consciousness and EU countries that are now turning towards sustainable oil palm. So what this is doing is actually pushing domestic energy policies that incentivize biofuels and the production of oil palm. And so there's an overlap between the international and national level policies, but they also overlap with domestic policies. So the demand for oil palm pushes cultivation of oil palm in the field, and there's a push for intensive land resource use. And this comes to questions of land tenure and land rights that affect local communities. So some of the communities that we've been looking at are the Minangkabau people in West Sumatra, and uh, they're a matrilineal society and land is passed down from mother to daughter. So increased commercialization of land and demand for commercial products such as oil palm over time have changed the system of land management. And these changes have been taking place over time. So this has begun since the period of Dutch colonization. So decisions on land use have effectively removed women out of the occasion even though they are the rightful owners of land. So land management has become male-dominated and patriarchal, patriarchal systems where male clan leaders and elite men in the community have been installed making decisions on who gets allocated land use for cultivating oil palm and also making decisions on things like where should the oil palm facility go, which can affect the environment of the community. So this case shows that even though women are the rightful owners, they have become disempowered in this consistent commercialization of land. It's an interesting segue into the world of agriculture, which I think, you know, many expect women's work to grow in the agriculture sector, particularly as predominantly male roles in that sector, maybe transition to look for jobs in urban centers and things like that going forward. I'm just curious, Adrian, you know, thinking about the example that May just brought up, but then also this broader work dynamic in the agricultural sector, what are some of the things that can be done to bring sort of, you know, gender aware policies to the climate and transition that's going to take place in the agricultural sector? Is, is that a place where you've done a lot of work? Well, I haven't done a lot of work in the agricultural sector myself, but it's an important case in point, given that it's so vulnerable, you know, to the impacts of climate change. And it does remain the most important source of employment for women in low-income and middle-income countries. ILO estimates about 60% of all working women in Southern Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa are in agriculture, often unpaid or poorly paid while concentrated in time and labor-intensive activities. So loss of livelihoods due to climate impacts or change, reductions in incomes, deterioration of working conditions in the sector have particular implications for women. 
at the same time, some of their socioeconomic vulnerabilities can be compounded due to intersecting dynamics, as I mentioned earlier, such as being a member of an indigenous group or being a migrant or one's disability status. And extreme weather events, loss of income and livelihoods, reduction of opportunities, these are all fueling labor migration as an adaption strategy. But unregulated mobility risks exposing workers, especially women workers, to forced labor and other forms of exploitation, especially in the informal economy. For example, many women from indigenous and tribal communities migrating to urban areas in search of income generating opportunities are concentrated in sectors that are prone to precarious working conditions and labor rights violations. But saying all this, at the same time, women in rural areas play such an important role in eradicating poverty and enhancing sustainable agriculture and rural development. So policies need to be gender responsive and pay attention to women's empowerment, their access. I'll come back to you know the analysis because now this comes into play for the implementation of an initiative. Women's access to and control over productive resources, including technology, including land tenure and control, technical assistance and access to markets. So these all need to build on what we call the four pillars of the decent work agenda. Employment promotion, respect for fundamental principles and rights at work, and international labor standards, labor and social protection, and social dialogue. In the just transition literature more broadly, there's always this emphasis on just outcomes and processes. In many communities, women are excluded from formal discussions and consultations about economic planning and transitions, as you've said, largely because of cultural norms. How can governments or organizations potentially be more inclusive of women in these processes, not just their outcomes? So there are many ways to do this. First of all, change must come from within the particular community. This cannot be imported from outside. This change, for it to be real, authentic, and sustained over time, must come from the actual community. So, I mean, it's always important to identify gender experts in every country they exist, you know, academics, there are women's rights organizations, there in many countries there are men's organizations that are fighting against, for example, gender-based violence and domestic violence, violence in workplaces. So there are always national level stakeholders that must be enabled and brought into the conversation. Now, it's very important also to identify what we call male champions for gender equality. Men can be incredibly effective in convincing their peers to support and respond to gender equality and women's empowerment. We know that if there isn't sensitization, reaching out to men, explaining why it's important that women are empowered, explaining why some targeted interventions are going to be focused on improving women's access to and control over those productive resources, et cetera, then we're going to get what we call male backlash. So very important to identify male gender champions and peer educators. And there are men in every single part and corner of this world, wherever you go, you are always going to find some men, often younger, but not always, 
who are questioning those rigid stereotypes and expectations and roles based on gender. So they are there and we want to identify them. Now, of course, you need to build into and leverage existing opportunities. So we use a results-based management approach. That means that we're working with indicators, targets, and baselines so that the focus is on improving over time on agreed priorities. And so obviously, to the extent that you're identifying these together with women and men, and everybody agrees on what these look like, this is very important and key. And I think it's also important to identify within a nation, for example, other policies and aims that we don't want to undermine. <laughs> for example, health and education goals for girls, we don't want those to be undermined because we haven't made sure that other policies, for example, concerning small and medium enterprises and other world of work related goals are undermined because some policies are gender absent and, and gender harmful. So these are just some of the ways. I mean, there's a long list I could, I could give you, but I'll finish with one that is identify what's working. We often focus on what's not working and these, you know, we come up with these overwhelming lists, you know, bullet lists of all the things that are not working and all the barriers. But positive deviance is very powerful. Positive deviance means what's working and we need to unpack that and see dissect that what's working why did it work what was the process what were the steps along the way and these can give us a lot of insight into the approach that we can use in other settings and in other situations may do you have anything to add to that i mean i think that's a number of uh, sort of powerful advice for how to be inclusive in the process of thinking about just transition and incorporating the viewpoints that are relevant for the gender dimension. Yeah, I can definitely add on to that with, I think having male gender champions is really important. Many times in the development field, we go in and request for women's focus groups and want to interact closely with women without telling the community why we're doing this. So I think it is a huge missed opportunity to really get everyone on board about why it is we are engaging women in these processes. And I, I also wanted to raise this issue of sharing opinions and engaging people in public participation, because I think oftentimes, even in contexts where governments have processes for public participation, for many communities, the processes can seem obscure or onerous, so they don't engage even when they have an opportunity to. So I think it's very important to work with community leaders to ensure that communities understand their rights to providing public opinion. And then the last thing I wanted to say is that in Western culture, giving an opinion is lauded and from where I come from and in many parts of the world, sometimes you are not given the opportunity to give your opinion. So when somebody comes in and asks you even to sign a consent form, you don't know what to do. So I think the cultural and historical background of a place that one works, understanding the roles of different people should give you an idea of how really difficult it is to engage people in a 
meaningful process of public participation. May those are such valuable comments. I'm really glad that you you made them. I do wonder, Adrian, it raises a number of dimensions here, which is we say that these processes have to be inclusive, but oftentimes there's just so much capacity building to do based on sort of the cultural perceptions of being inclusive or raising your voice or even, you know, recently in some other diversity and inclusion conversations we've had, the idea of being inclusive, but again, putting all the work on women to advance their own perspectives in a conversation and not including sort of male champions in that is very complex undertaking. I imagine and and have read about, you know, some of the work that ILO does to try and give people who are trying to have these inclusive conversations a starting point, right? To figure out how to go about doing this to make sure that you know how to put one foot in front of the other. Did you want to address any of the, the things that May had just put on the table? Yeah, and thank you, May, for bringing that up. I was looking at the toolkit for gender-responsive process to formulate and implement national adaptation plans. And it's true that decision-making at the institutional level, women are underrepresented in all decision-making in all areas. And in that toolkit, they mentioned only 12% of heads of environment-related ministries, including environment, water, agriculture, and forestry, among others, are women and that 65% of the countries analyzed didn't even have a single female minister. Now, Catalyst and others have done some uh, very good work on women in decision-making. And after decades of research and data, it's pretty clear how to do it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's not magic. There are actually very clear strategies to use, and these give results. Now, about being culturally sensitive, it's very important to always work with local women's rights organizations, men who are working on gender issues such as domestic violence and stopping gender-based violence. It's very important to identify and work with these stakeholders because they will speak the local dialect, they will understand the local sensitivities. There are both barriers within religion and practices and tradition. At the same time, there are many opportunities. So that's why it's so important to identify religious leaders as well. My final point will be about men and masculinities. You know, most men have never, ever been given the chance or even asked anything about gender, and they've never even been given a space to think about or talk about or share their own feelings about what it means to be a man in my society, pressures of having to prove my masculinity, the vulnerabilities and the risks that one takes to prove one's masculinity. Men have higher alcohol and drug abuse rates. Men dominate the the most dangerous occupations, etc. So we need to, as gender specialists and advocates for gender equality, we need to make sure that men are part of this approach, always, always knowing that a men and masculinities approach is just a strategy within the larger aim of promoting gender equality. So we're not taking away 
time and resources and space for women. That's the most important. But we are helping men to be part of the conversation. What are the costs of being and proving one's masculinity in my society? What would a gender just family and society look like? And what would be the benefits for me, a man, as well as for my female relatives? So these can help to be game changers in the huge enormous challenge. May, anything you want to add to that? No, I think you summed it up perfectly and I completely agree with you. May, I want to stay with you for a minute. You and your colleagues recently published a report called Assessing the Gender and Social Equity Dimensions of the Energy Transitions, which illustrates the complexity of this challenge. And I think you just talked a little bit about this and how the outcome of a specific policy can really be a mixed bag of both sort of positive and negative social impacts how do you, would you recommend that policymakers use some of these findings to promote gender equality? And, you know, what are the policy tools and metrics that, that you think are, are the most useful? I think Adrian talked a lot about sort of pillars and baselining and the process of being inclusive about people's aspirations and expectations. What are some of the tools and metrics that you have found are useful? I think even before we talk about tools and metrics, I think that we need to have systemic change. A lot of the underlying reasons for inequality is intensive commercialism that relies on cheap labor, that relies on injustices and the exclusion of marginalized groups, the elite capture of wealth, which is leading to loss of subsistence and livelihoods based on dependency. So I think we need systemic change in order to actually move towards a just transition that is not based on a commercially extractive way of operating. So that's just one huge thing that we have to tackle. And beyond that, I think going back to the metrics, I think there are different ways in which we can use our research and indicators to understand the experiences of the most marginalized people so that we can have policies that can address their needs most. So um, Adrian mentioned disaggregated data, which I think is immensely important in really understanding the experiences of um, the most marginalized groups in society. But there are also other indicators that can highlight experiences more that are not so quantifiable, for example, MDP, multiple dimensions of poverty indicators. So indicators that can highlight the whole experience of poverty and look at psychological effects like shame and go beyond just looking at income, for example, to understand the experiences of the poor. We can also look at things like gross happiness index, which can also consider the fulsome experiences of people rather than just quantifying their experiences by income or education level or all of the indicators that we typically use to measure individual experiences. Those are great. Those are helpful. This has been a really interesting conversation and on a dimension of the just transitions that we don't tend to talk about enough. And I want to thank you both for spending some time with us today. I do want to provide one last opportunity because I do think this is a new issue for many of our listeners 
uh, many of whom are just sort of becoming familiar with the concept of just transitions and all that it entails. Any parting thoughts or anything additional you want to add, particularly for folks who are thinking about how to start along the journey of thinking about just transitions and, and all the dimensions that it entails? And really, you know, thinking about some of these gender issues that we talked about today. Maybe I'll I'll start with Adrian and then go to May. Yeah, thank you. Just two things that we didn't talk a lot about, but I I think are very important, certainly as we are transitioning out of the current crisis towards recovery. And that would be unpaid care work. And the other would be violence and harassment in the world of work. Obviously, this crisis exacerbated women's unequal provision of unpaid care work. Before the crisis, ILO estimates that about 16.4 billion hours were spent in unpaid care work globally with about two-thirds of it by performed by women. And during this pandemic, both women and men have had to devote more time to unpaid care work due to school closures, reductions in public services, and other reasons. So I think that this crisis has, again, brought to the forefront the need to address and support workers with care responsibilities, women and men. We also want to encourage men with elderly parents, with children, to take on their fair share of of care work. And many countries have pushed for flexible work arrangements during this crisis, teleworking where possible. Some have increased support, such as including loans for freelance workers, payments for persons caring for COVID-affected family members, other countries using childcare benefits, and expanding those to support low-income parents. So there are many ways that the new and better normal, once we're in recovery mode from the current crisis, can actually continue to address unpaid care work and workers with family responsibilities. Now on the violence and harassment in the world of work, this is an important and unfortunately also made the headlines. We know that there was increased domestic violence during the shutdowns uh, while many people were teleworking or within their homes. So the ILO has a brand new convention on violence and harassment in the world of work, and it will enter into force in June of 2021. And this has also become an opportunity to address violence and harassment in the world of work, because such violence is, from a gender point of view, it's both a symptom of, but also a tool for discrimination against women. Men, especially men who are not conforming to patriarchal, heterosexual, rigid expectations about masculinities, are also vulnerable to such violence. So again, I think that this crisis gives us a huge opportunity to address these two issues that have come to the forefront during the transition. That's great, Andrea, and I really like the term working towards a new and better normal. (laughs) Hopefully that's where we're headed. May, any parting thoughts? So my first point is that I think we need to deeply reflect on the role of renewables in a just transition. I think that regardless of what trajectory we take, renewables will be a very important technological intervention. So we have to think of how can we best achieve 
a just transition using renewable technology interventions. And renewables itself are not the solution on its own because they are operating within a system where there's inequality and operating in systems where there is poor governance, lack of participation, and uh, systems that exclude people. So that being said, I really also think that it is very important to have women more involved in STEM careers. So in a lot of countries, women being involved in the STEM field has a cultural stigma. I think we need to break those and make sure that we empower women so that they are more included in decision makings on a just transition, being involved in renewable technologies and implementing them on the ground. And I think back to what Adrian's point was earlier about care work and productive work, when women are employed in these fields, there has to be interventions that ensure that women's productive work is compensated properly, as well as their reproductive work and care work. So there needs to be strong systems of support, like strong welfare systems that ensure that they are happy and can operate in the STEM field. Great. Listen, these have been enormously useful uh, insights and advice. I want to thank you both for the important work that you're doing and for taking time out of your very busy schedules to share with us some of the gender dimensions of a just transition, not only in how we've experienced uh, these issues so far, but some solutions for thinking about how we pursue this issue going forward. It's just been really educational. And I want to say thank you very much to both of you for being here today. Thanks to Sarah, May, and Adrian for sharing their insights with us today. If you want to learn more about their work or about Just Transitions, we have a list of resources on our website. And Energy360 has a previous podcast, which might be of interest as well. And you can always find more episodes of Energy360 wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. And also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. 